0: Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Exploring the Human Endeavor. Hub
1: and Spoke. Audio Collective. In 2012, Michael Arad was living in Portland, Maine. He was foraging for wild blackberries on the edge of town one day when something on the ground stopped him short, a set of bones.
2: You do a lot of hiking in the woods and you come across carcasses and this just didn't look like bones that I had ever seen before. And it slowly and kind of horrifically dawned on me what this was.
1: Human remains, a woman. Her name, Michael found out later, was Tanya. She'd been living on the streets and she disappeared maybe a year earlier. It wasn't clear exactly when. No one had reported her disappearance to the police. There was no announcement on local news. No search parties.
2: She just kind of vanished. But she was always invisible, so you can't really say that she vanished. But I found her.
1: These thoughts, the whole
2: incident, they shook Michael. He came to realize he owed something to Tanya. So, you know, I did a lot of reading in the anthropology of death and came to understand that there are, two, there are two deaths. One is the biological death and the other is the social death. And the living are intensely involved in both. And that in some cultures, occasionally you can have circumstances where someone might be trapped between the biological death and the social death. They're physically dead, but they haven't fully been socially sent off. And one of those conditions is when people are sort of unburied. So I had found someone who was in this liminal state. And because
1: of that circumstance, and also because no cause of death could be determined by the medical examiner, Michael decided to take on certain responsibilities himself.
2: She was dead, but I needed to sort of do something. And I ended up uh, doing a lot of research, a lot of reporting and writing her story as a way of completing her her social death. You know, I sort of thought about what her experience of dying was or what it might have been, you know, and how she came to be there is... Still a mystery, but thinking about how she was alone, if she was indeed dying in the woods, and that that condition of, you know, of dying alone to me, and I think to a lot of people in America, sort of sounds like the very definition of a bad death to do that alone. And because she was alone, there was no one there to comfort her, and there was no one there to hear anything that she would say. That would be the last sort of message that she would provide.
1: What did Tanya say at the end of her life if she said anything? That, for Michael, was as big a mystery as all the others. Hearing someone's last words or reading about them, it acts as, I don't know, comfort, connection. It does seem to be very much a part of the social death. We can think about those words talk about them with others, try to interpret them. With Tania, none of that was possible. Maybe it wouldn't have mattered. Sometimes, often, witnesses at the deathbed, they don't fully understand what their loved one is actually saying, because the words appear to make no sense, or they're barely whispered, impossible to make out. But still, we, the people left behind by the dying, we feel the need to witness and record and cherish those words. From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, this is Subtitle, Stories About Languages and the People Who Speak Them. In this episode, the utterances that mark the end of our linguistic lives, why we value them and sometimes misjudge them. Okay, a quick note here. Usually we strive to maintain a consistent tone throughout an episode. With this one though, we're not even gonna try to do that. Death, loved ones, and language, that's just too unstable a compound. You've been warned.
3: Hi, Patrick.
1: It's Kavi de Pelé, who's here to help me with chapter one. Chapter one, a quiz. Okay. So I've got some quotes here. They're all last words of famous people who supposedly said them just right before they popped off. Okay. I would like you to guess or to tell me if you know which famous person said each of them.
3: All right. I'll give it a go.
1: And I will reveal the answers at the end of the episode.
3: I I have to wait that long.
1: Afraid so. (laughs) Okay. Number one, all my possessions for a moment of time.
3: All my possessions. That's it? That's it. All my possessions for a moment of time. Um, okay, so it's someone with a lot of possessions. I don't know. I'm going to say Cleopatra.
1: Okay, I'm not going to tell you if you're right or not. I'm just going to move mm. right along. <laughs> All right. Number two. This is actually my favorite deathbed quote. This was in response to a question from somebody, a friend or family member, who was asking how this person was. Here it goes. I am dying, but otherwise quite well.
3: Very dry humor up till the end. I'm tempted to say Cleopatra for all of these, but (laughs) at some point it's it's going to be Cleopatra. Uh, Who, who, gosh, who would have such wit at the end of their life? Let's say Bob Hope.
1: Another good guess. Let's go on to the next one. This was someone who died in uh, a shabby hotel room. Hmm. Either that wallpaper goes or I do.
3: Oh, this one I know because it's so great. It's so famous. It's Oscar Wilde.
1: That's right. He died in poverty in a hotel in Paris in 1900. Such a great quote.
3: Whether or not he actually said it, I mean, do is it known whether he actually said this or is this one of those apocryphal deathbed quotes?
1: I will reveal that too at the end of the episode. <laughs> okay. Number four is extremely short. I'm bored. Wow, I'm bored.
3: What I would like guess on this, I'm going to think it was someone who was very exciting in life. Can I get a hint, like, what part of the world?
1: Yeah, this is an American writer, and I can give you the year 1987.
3: Oh, 87, American writer. I'm going to say Philip Roth. I have no idea. I don't remember when he died.
1: It was not Philip Roth, although I imagine that Philip Roth may well have been extremely bored when you die. It's a boring (laughs) thing to do for most, especially if it's prolonged.
3: Mm -hmm. Right.
1: Number five. This is also kind of a favorite of mine, although this is not a long time favorite. I only came across it when I was researching this episode. You are supposed to say beautiful things and you can't.
3: Oh, okay. That's it. You are supposed to say beautiful things and you can't.
1: This is unfair, this one, because... You're not going to know who this was. I didn't even know this person existed, although in her country, I think everybody knew her.
3: Okay. Tell me the country, if you will.
1: Yes, of course. Romania.
3: Oh, goodness. I have no idea. I, th- I think I could have come up with something if I was just guessing without that hint. I I really have no idea. I couldn't even make something up, I don't think.
1: I would accept a title without the name.
3: A title. You mean like a... Like some sort of royalty?
1: Ding, 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 ding. Yes. It's Queen Elizabeth of Romania, who died in 1916. And I feel so sorry for her, if that indeed was her last spoken thought.
3: That's pretty rough. Obviously, she lived a life in the limelight with a lot of pressure. Till the end.
1: Till the end. I don't know about you, but... No one I know has ever overheard a dying loved one say something deep or mystical at the very end, or crack a joke. Maybe Queen Elizabeth of Romania didn't realize that those kind of pronouncements from other people, a lot of them at least, they're invented by others, or at the very least conceived and rehearsed in healthier, earlier days. Maybe she thought these aphorisms and witticisms arrived spur of the moment, on the lips of the dying, as a final inspiration. So instead, she's left with her final disappointment that she couldn't come up with anything. You are supposed to say beautiful things and you can't. But what do we know? Maybe the context was totally different. Maybe Queen Elizabeth of Romania was speaking to her speechwriter whose job it was to make her sound profound and regal. Maybe she was accusing the speechwriter of having writer's block at the most key of moments. You are supposed to say beautiful things, and you can't. It works that way too. Sadly, though, there is no mention in the history books of a speechwriter. Instead, we learn that not only was Elizabeth no longer queen when she said those words, she lost the title two years before when her husband died, but she was supposedly saying those words to her successor, the new queen, Marie. No wonder she was at a loss for words. Chapter two, whispered in my ear. Tanmoy Goswami is the founder of Sanity, an independent mental health journalism platform in India. He told me this story from his home in Delhi in the middle of a heat wave, which accounts for the noise of the fan in the background.
4: When I was really young, maybe about, I was about eight or ten years old, that's when I experienced the first death, sort of firsthand, in my family, when my grandfather passed away. And just before he died, he called me, and he, he was very, very old and very ill, and he kind of whispered in my ears, and it's funny because I have not remembered or told this story to anybody in a long, long time. He called me and he whispered in my ears the names of sort of his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather. I was 10, like I said. I, I don't remember. I probably remember one or two names. But I told my father that he had done that and my father was very moved because I think what was obviously happening there was he was trying to make sure that somebody after him knows where his lineage comes from of course only the men there was no mention of women that was the first time that i got a taste and i can only say this in retrospect of course of how important it is to to witness somebody's last words that is hard to uh forget i think
1: What comes before last words? Long before, if you rewind back to the very beginning. That's after the break. Jumping in here to tell you about another podcast you might check out. It's called All Ears English. This is a great podcast for anyone looking for a new and fun way to learn American English. Hosts Lindsay McMahon and Michelle Kaplan will help you navigate vocab and idioms and, very important, American English small talk. All Ears English is an English as a Second Language podcast for immediate to advanced English learners from around the world. But frankly, I, a native English speaker, I have started listening and I'm learning a ton too. Join the community to learn to speak American English as if you were born in the shadow of the Statue of Liberty. As Lindsay and Michelle say, it's about connection, not perfection. Subscribe to All Ears English wherever you're listening right now. Chapter 3. First Words Michael Irard didn't just wonder about the last words of Tanya whose remains he'd discovered in the main woods. He found himself
2: thinking about first words, too. You know, I later came to find out that she had kids of her own and that they had, you know, first words. Maybe she remembered them, maybe she didn't. If she did, when she died, that knowledge sort of disappeared. That passed away as well.
1: Michael's discovery of Tanya came at a pivotal point in his life.
2: It was a couple years after that, whole experience of trying to understand why I was so unsettled by it that, um, that I had another baby. So it was kind of this really intense experience with mortality, uh, sandwiched by the arrival of two children who were using language for the first time.
1: Just to be clear, this is not Michael's family, but you know the scene, excited baby, even more excited parent. It was like that for Michael too, with his older son.
2: He was about 13 months old and he was lying on his back on a bed. And we were at a small hotel in Canada, which is only relevant because there was a ceiling fan above the bed, which we don't have at home. And this was a baby who was fascinated by things that went around, fans, wheels, propellers, and I was changing his diaper and he was saying, wow, 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 wow. And we must have pointed those things out, you know, fans and said, oh, it's going around and around. And I stopped and I said, are you saying round, round? It suddenly occurred to me, this might be a production.
1: Something he was actively trying to say, and something that his father responded to.
2: He got this big smile on his face, and it was actually the smile in some ways that was the confirmation that I had accurately perceived and identified the thing that he had intended to to say and to point out to me. Wow, you said round, round. And he was really happy that I recognized that.
1: But was that the first word? Michael's not sure. There were earlier things he said too, like ka. He said that a lot, often pointing at random things. It didn't seem to have a fixed meaning.
2: But it was probably something like, hey, look at that. Now, why he would choose ka for that, I don't know. But that was the thing that he regularly said over and over.
1: Does that meet the definition of a word? I mean, calm meant something. It was intended to draw attention to things. It was part of an interaction. But at the time, it didn't strike Michael as that moment, you know, when a human crosses the linguistic threshold.
2: Because I was obsessed with trying to, like, be there for the emergence of this thing and to know, oh, here I am on this side and I lived through it and now I'm on the other side of this. But I missed it entirely. Like, we didn't celebrate that, we were just we were scratching our heads.
1: There were sounds before that, too. Things like, eh. Words? No. But Michael son did produce these vocalizations for a
2: reason. He was manipulating our attention. He was recognizing that we were looking at the same thing, and the same thing that we were looking at was each other which was now, you know, in retrospect, really was the dawn of something that was significant and that things were from there about to change in some interesting ways. I kind of came to that first experience with with parenting with this idea that when he uses words, then I'll really know who he is. Then we'll really be able to connect. But in some ways, I really found that in the year that it took for him to say eh and ka and finally run, that I didn't need them. There were so many other ways of understanding his emotional state, his physical needs, his feelings of connection to me and to indicating my connection to him, that the words as a thing really weren't that important. and that happens at the end of life as well.
1: Chapter four, the diversity of death. There are many ways to die, and just as many ways to interpret what the dying is saying. Steve Jobs had pancreatic cancer. His last reported words were, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. Of course, I've got no idea how he said those words. Was he looking back on his life, or being transported into a new reality? Was he responding to pain, or was he delirious? Other last words are more concrete, much more. Reminders of how cruelly people have died. I can't breathe. Those are words with a clear intention, an appeal to be allowed to breathe. Now, because the people who said them weren't allowed to breathe, the words have taken on new meanings or subtexts. No more police brutality. End societal racism. Don't let those ever be anyone's last words again. And then there are people's last words online.
0: So Patrick, to be honest with you, I had been thinking about our last digital footprints for a while now.
1: This is Shafali Bhatt, a journalist with the Indian publication Mint. She reports on how the internet is changing how we live. And that term she uses, last digital footprint, It's disconcerting. I don't know about you, but I don't especially like the idea of being memorialized via Google searches or my latest tweets.
0: There was somebody who was a year younger than me who passed away earlier this year.
1: Someone who worked in tech who tweeted a lot.
0: Their last tweet was actually about hiring dilemmas, a hot topic in the tech industry. So a lot of people participated, engaged with that tweet a few days after they tweeted that, they passed away of a cardiac arrest. And a lot of people who didn't know about it saw that tweet on their timeline and would respond.
1: The comments, the conversation, they continued for days. Occasionally, someone would chime in saying the person had died. But a lot of people just continued the original conversation about jobs in the tech industry.
0: And then an internet service company that this person had once worked with put out a tweet saying that this person was once a part of our organization and we pay our condolences. And as is the practice with the internet, right? People just see a tweet from a service company and without looking at the context, they just start complaining about the bad service that that company has. It's just very disrespectful to the last memories of, of that person. And I think that really pained me to, you know, to see what was happening.
1: Even now, months later, Shafali is haunted by this arbitrary misplaced reaction to a person's last digital footprint. She says she still doesn't know what to make of it. The circumstances are just too new.
0: There are so many ways that it affects you. But how it affects you is something which is very hard to explain.
1: Chapter 5, Hello, Goodbye. Among the new end-of-life situations we faced during the pandemic was the presence of technology as a form of communication. Betsy Roslin is a registered nurse who, during part of that time, worked in end-of-life care.
5: We had uh, you know, iPads and we did FaceTime.
1: Listening to Betsy, the presence of devices and the internet in those final interactions, doesn't seem that novel anymore. We're already used to the idea of it.
5: It is different talking to someone through a screen rather than having someone hold uh, their loved one's hands. That's sort of the hallmark of intimacy at that stage. Even when, when the words have gone, touch is really important. And, and hearing, you know, loud and clear from people that want to say their goodbyes. And, of course, they were doing it over a screen. It was hard.
1: It also made for hard decisions from the hospice nurses who themselves feared infection.
5: Everyone was pretty terrified. I can think of some people that um, did pass away at our facility, and we wouldn't let any visitors in. Uh, One was a 40-year-old man, and I made the decision to admit him to a room that had a window that was directly to the outside. We were used to having a lot of visitors, but we couldn't allow them in based on what our director had mandated And I opened the window, but there was still a screen there. And, you know, it was very difficult. If I had to do it again, I probably would have just let them in and dealt with the consequences. As it was, someone questioned my judgment and even opening the window. And I thought, my goodness, you know, here's this mother trying to touch her son through a screen. And even though we had pushed the bed as close as possible, it seemed really distant.
1: Did you witness, I wouldn't ask you to to relate specifically what people said to each other, but was the nature of how people may have said their goodbyes or what they said, was that different because of those circumstances?
5: I think it was. I think it was a lot more tearful. There was an extra level of, of heartache. It was still something that just made that last interaction so distant literally the next time they would see this loved one would be at the funeral home. So there was this whole missing piece of the puzzle that is very important when that is the last time they would ever have a chance to see each other.
1: That's so interesting that you put it that way. And you said before how important touch was. I mean, here am I doing a story about last words, and it sounds as though There's a whole missing bit there, which is between those last words and, as you say, the funeral hum. And a lot of us have experienced precisely that. I mean, my last week with my dad was entirely without verbal communication, and yet there was plenty of communication. It was just gestural or, you know, squeezes, hand squeezes and those kinds of things.
5: I think touch is very important. and you know, A cool cloth on someone's brow, sponging their parched lips. You know, there's a lot of intimacy in that, and so all of that was taken away.
1: Betsy says the way we die varies, of course, from one person to the next. But like everyone who's been around it a lot, she sees patterns.
5: There's a description called the laboring process of death, and much like a woman going into labor and experiencing the contractions, and um, there's a, a flow to it with an expectation at the end of the birth. This is a patient transitions from a state of functioning organs to a literal shutting down somewhat systematically. Words can come back, but I don't think they would be A sentence, it might be monosyllables, a repetitive word, or I've read that people will will say mama or things like that, and they lack the strength to actually get a verbalization out. You know, their vocal cords fail them at that point. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's funny you should say mama because one thinks of that more typically as a first word.
5: That's true.
2: We are such a word oriented culture and we are such a speech oriented culture. Words, legible words, and legible words to which we can attribute some sort of intention will always take precedence over other sorts of behaviors.
1: We have to beat back words, Michael Arad says, or at least understand them for what they are. And sometimes, They don't have much to do with what they're supposed to mean.
2: There's a whole set of things that happen at the end of life, which are kind of problematic, such as delirious language. Are the things that someone says when they're delirious, are they intentional? Is it that person speaking? You'll hear phrases like, that's not your father, that's the disease. Or your father is not saying that your father is gone. So you don't have to be troubled by what it is that you're hearing. But in the same way that when you look at observations of children's early communicative behavior, the emergence of early vocabulary, it's not a straight line. Not a straight
1: line, but a gradient. At the beginning of life, words are thrown out into the air, sometimes with meaning, sometimes without. And bit by bit, they acquire what we think of as sense. It may be an indication that the person speaking is behaving less as an organism, more as their own self. The reverse happens at the end of life, as words become detached from their semantic meaning. Though they may still have some sort of meaning, especially when combined with groans, sighs, gestures, eye contact, and all kinds of other communication cues that aren't rooted in language.
2: So it opens up the possibility of considering other sorts of behaviors as like an articulation of consciousness, as a final articulation of who that person is. That's not just the witticism or is not just, you know, a word, but is someone told me a story about a father, not very old, who was dying of cancer and and wasn't able to, to verbalize anything, but sort of opened his eyes and very intently, he had his his daughters who were quite young at the bed and sort of just looked at each of them, one after another, very intently. And then he passed away.
1: Michael Irade is writing a book about all this, last words and first. He owes a lot, he says, to Tanya finding what was left of her in the woods he knew he had that responsibility that he talked about to help give her a social death but also he'd never met her he didn't know her and that's why that encounter opened a door he says when it came to starting to write about death and words
2: because i had no connection to her i don't need my discussion of dying and death to reflect anything that I need from her. I don't need to connect to her specifically through these ideas or what I'm writing about. Sometimes, and I'm probably not going to say this right, but but sometimes I feel like people who get interested in, in death and dying are doing so because someone close to them has passed away and they're still processing that, personal loss at the same time that they're learning about death and dying. You know, one of the gifts that I think that Tanya gave to me was opening the door to the topic, but without that personal grief. It was a grief for sure, but it wasn't a personal one.
1: Michael Arad, his book on first and last words and what they tell us about language, will be published by MIT Press at some point in the future. Big thanks to Michael, also to Tanmoy Goswani, Shafali Bhatt, and Betsy Rosslin. And of course to Kavita Palay, subtitle co-host and quiz contestant. The answers by the way are coming up in a minute or so. Tina Toby is our sound designer, Alison Shaw manages our social media newsletter. You can sign up for the newsletter at subtitlepod.com/newsletter. Subtitle is a member of the Hub & Spoke Audio Collective. We're a bunch of podcasters who are all dedicated to telling stories about stuff that you won't come across in many other places. Here's one of the other Hub & Spoke podcasts, Ministry of Ideas. In the latest episode, host Zachary Davis explores the complex nature of national borders and discovers that they're not really the fixed lines on a map some of us imagine them to be. Listen to Ministry of Ideas and all of the Hub & Spoke podcasts at hubspokeaudio.org. Thanks for listening. Now for the answers to the quiz. Kavi. Let's do it. All my possessions for a moment of time. I said Cleopatra. You said Cleopatra. It was... Queen Elizabeth I of England.
3: Okay, so I was on the right track.
1: Number two, this was the one that's my favorite. In response to a question about how this person was, I am dying, but otherwise quite well. This was the British poet and critic Edith Sitwell, who died in 1964.
3: Good quote. I wouldn't have known it.
1: Okay, number three, you got right. That was the Oscar Wilde quote when he, just before he died in 1900, either that wallpaper goes or I do. Uh, That particular quote is probably not those words. It may have only appeared in a letter that he wrote. There's all kinds of different stories about that. Mm -hmm. So as there are with the other ones, the Queen Elizabeth I, I don't think many people think that she actually said that, but it was said on her behalf perhaps. Mm. Um. Okay, number four was I'm Bored, American author and activist, died in 1987, James Baldwin.
3: Oh, wow. I would not have paired up James Baldwin with that quote.
1: I think everything in his whole world moved at great speed and with great passion, and dying probably was a bit of a letdown.
3: Mm.
1: (laughs) Who knows? And number five, which you got right again, uh, you're supposed to say beautiful things and you can't, Queen Elizabeth of <laughs> Romania, who died in 1916. A bonus quote for you now, just so we don't end on a total bummer. Mm. This was from 1994, and here's the quote. I want the world to be filled with white fluffy duckies.
3: Oh, what a lovely thought on your way out. Uh, Could you say it again? Lovely fluffy duckies?
1: I want the world to be filled with white fluffy duckies.
3: Oh, white fluffy duckies. Is this a person who was somehow known for duckies?
1: No, No? No, uh, not to my knowledge.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Um, This
1: was a person who dreamed up kind of very Baroque images. So in that sense, it is in keeping.
3: Okay. So someone creative... Yes. Any other hints?
1: He was a filmmaker, a British filmmaker, who made kind of art films that sometimes sort of entered, not exactly the mainstream, but they were successes.
3: Oh, the, let's see. It wasn't...
1: i got a barking dog in the background. Oh, I can't, can't. hear. <laughs> um, Louis, do you, have you got the answer? <laughs> oh, sweet. His name is Derek Jarman. Oh, yeah, I But it's a great quote. His world may now be filled with white fluffy duckies. (laughs)
3: Let's hope. (laughs) I hope he got his wish.
0: Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Exploring the Human Endeavor.
1: Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.